Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. Michelle, hope you had a good weekend, first off. Thank you. Um, There's a lot in the news, as there always is, but today is a little bit different, it seems. It's Mm -hmm. like there are a lot of little stories Mm -hmm. that are components of bigger stories. Mm -hmm. And um, there are a couple things that have actually made me very angry. I'm going to start with... uh, With something that I've been sort of thinking about and working on most of the night, Uh, we're going to talk today about censorship and the the throttling of independent media. And this is what's got me so upset. Uh, There's been a lot more of it lately. Yesterday afternoon, Consortium News became the latest casualty. Consortium News is one of the most highly respected independent news sources out there. The board of directors is made up of very serious people with very serious backgrounds. The writers for, for Consortium News are, you know, major figures in their in their fields. And um, and PayPal went after them this weekend and suspended uh, Consortium News's uh, account, not just suspended the account, but suspended it on the first day of the spring fundraiser uh, on payday, which, you know, kind of made me a little upset and, um, (laughs) and seized the money, almost $10,000 saying we might give it back to you in six months or we might not. So tough luck for you. Yeah. And it's not just consortium. They did this a few days ago to mint press news they did it to Caleb Maupin, formerly of RT America. Uh, this is part of a bigger theme, it seems to me. Um, Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas uh, was on the Sunday morning talk shows defending the government's new disinformation board. Well, this is all this is all part of of that. Uh, I would say it's a government effort, a government attempt con- to control debate in the yeah. country. It's, it's decidedly anti-free speech, but uh, it all comes down to Russia, Ukraine, in my view, at least as the overarching issue, that if you are in any way expressive of an opinion that is not right smack in the mainstream, Russia bad, Ukraine good, mm-hmm. then the government's going to come after you. Mm-hmm. And that's what we've seen. Yeah. That's what we've seen. So we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about uh, Nancy Pelosi's trip to Ukraine over the weekend. Um, She went there to celebrate uh, President Biden's decision to give Ukraine yet another $33 billion in aid. Although they still have to figure out how to pass that, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes, you you took the words right okay. out of my mouth. Th- this is the funny thing. Congress is not in session, mm-hmm. right? Everybody went home to campaign. They've got primaries coming up and fundraising. Um, so Congress isn't in session. And here the president's like, I really need this $33 billion. Guys, we got to send this aid package. Yeah. Well, somebody needs to be back here in Washington writing the bill. Mm-hmm. And we haven't heard of anybody writing the bill. Mm-hmm. So that's a major issue here. Um, She was given the highest um, civilian honor that the Ukrainian government can bestow, 
you know, the Grand Poobah uh, order of whatever. That's not really what it's called, if anybody's... No, right. You know, Don't yeah. accuse us of misinformation. Yeah. <laughs> that is not the official name of whatever this award was. Yeah, no, no. The other thing is like, so part of it, we're going to talk about this later in the show, and forgive me if I'm jumping the gun, but uh, I, as I understand it, the White House is trying to use assets seized from Russian oligarchs and liquidated to make up some of this funding. Yes. And so to that end, they are attempting to create streamlined ways to take the assets of foreign nationals to meet some pretty fuzzy criteria. That's right. And Uh, it's patently unconstitutional. mm -hmm. There's no due process here. You can't just tell somebody, I don't like your politics, so I'm going to take all of your wealth. I mean, really, this is, you know, we are beating a dead horse here. But honestly, one of the criteria in the White House fact sheet is uh, assets uh, having been, it was like directly or indirectly um, uh, amassed through corrupt dealings with the Russian government. Right. What is our definition of corruption? Because it seems to be, you know, again, it is a very flexible definition. Indeed. And when you are talking about a sort of official enemy, literally anything could be called corruption. Sure. You know, and of course, we'll have no bearing on the kinds of deals that we make with other governments, the kinds of deals that happen within our own governments and between corporations and our government. And so, again, this is a problem. If you have no fixed and universally applied standard for this stuff then it is 100% sim- simply a political tool. You're absolutely right. There was an article in the New York Times last week uh, about a quote-unquote Ukrainian oligarch, right? And he had received this letter from the Treasury Department saying, hey, we're taking a look at your wealth, and we're not sure that uh, you actually earned all of it. And, and he's like, well, wait a minute. I've been an American citizen for 40 years. And I've earned every dollar that I have. You can't just decide because I have a Ukrainian name and I haven't made my my pick in the war public that you're going to then just take what I have. You can't do that. So as you might imagine, uh, constitutional scholars are up in arms. You know, we're, we're hearing professors from from Harvard and Stanford and Berkeley talking about this issue. This is not this is not oligarch defense hour. You know what I mean? It's just like it it is just it is a it is a dangerous precedent to set because it is so purely political. And we don't have to wait to see similar things happening uh, to, you know, independent independent media, as you just said. Right. We don't even have to wait to slide down the slippery slope. We're right. sort of already there. Right. We should be concerned about this. And it has nothing to do with that. You know who who I want to be enjoying time on his yacht or not. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it might have been amusing to some people weeks ago when the the mainstream media told us that Russian oligarchs' yachts were being seized, right? In Italy and Monte Carlo and places like that. Seize them all. Yeah. Just, but seize them all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. If I you're going to eat the rich, eat get the rich. Get them all. Get them all. Yep, yep. But you can't just decide. I don't like that guy's politics, so I'm taking his stuff. A little nibble here, a little nibble there. Yeah. Don't like that at all. Can I make a, co- a quick comment about the, Please the, do. the NFL draft? Oh, yeah. The NFL draft this this weekend started with like a song by a Ukrainian artist and had a bunch of flags up and a moment of silence for Ukraine. Which again, just the 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 Hollywoodification of this conflict to me is is really 
sinister and, and perplexing. And it is one of these things where like some of the, you know, some of the more bombastic claims about what this war is, is it, you know, is it an effort of genocide on, on Russia's part, blah, blah, blah. I mean, if you believe that, and that's not necessarily a mainstream claims, but if you actually believe that, do you think a, a musical performance at the NFL draft is an appropriate response? You know what I mean? Like if you did look back to like 19, 1943 or something, 1944, and you're like, hey, I'm hearing these weird rumors out of Germany. that like some really uh, incredibly bad stuff is going on there. You know, like not it's, it's guys, I think it might be worse than we thought. Let's ha- sing a song about it. You know what I mean? And I do oh. think it is part of a it is part of a sort of watering down uh, one watering down of language. What, it, you know, and and sort of a, a hierarchy of atrocities that you do have to have, you know, war, war, civilian casualties are sort of tragically inevitable. What is the difference between this and genocide? Does one bear a different, you know, require a different kind of response, et cetera. But then also this sort of watering down of this idea of, of activism and responding to things. I'm going to I'm going to go one one better. Um, I mentioned to my brother yesterday, uh, I was talking to my brother and I've said on the show before, my brother's a big shot, you know, Hollywood music producer, chairman of the Grammys, uh, nominating committees, a big deal. And I said to him the other day, yesterday, hey, I'm going to be in L.A. for for the weekend in a couple of weeks. Uh, I have to do some uh, a documentary uh, interview. Uh, I'd love to uh, to hang out. And he said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm going to be in in Helsinki. I said, Helsinki, what in the world are you going to do in Helsinki? And he said, believe it or not, Eurovision hired me to do a seminar on how to write a hit song for Ukrainian songwriters. What? Uh-huh. what? Because wow. right, we need to inspire Ukrainian yeah. artists and through music and poetry and whatever silliness, they're going to stand up to the Russians and preserve Ukrainian culture. It's just a weird. I mean, again, it's the world's it sounds, gone nuts. It's, it, it sounds like we're sort of advocating for it's just like what what is the purpose of all of this? If it's not worth us starting a wider war. Yeah. You know, if, if we have decided that it's not worth it, then why is that? Why are we still having this 100 percent propaganda push? Mm-hmm. What is the other reason for it? What I mean, it's not worth starting. you like, why again? Why, why do we not have a Somalian singer in, yes. in front of the You're exactly NFL right. draft or, you know, any of the other countries that the U.S. has invaded? It is just bizarre. And I think, you know, I think actually people do. People think it's weird. Normal people think it's weird yeah. uh, and, and good on them because it is. I, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. You brought something up, too, that uh, is just infuriating that I had totally missed mm-hmm. at the Hill newspaper today. Uh, oh, God, this headline. <laughs> this headline. Tell us about oh, that. I just thought I didn't even, listen. The The article is just sort of one more article about how like, hey, guys, it'd be bad if if uh, if a nuclear war started. But the headline is how to stop Putin from popping a nuke. And popping I just want nuke. to take this opportunity on Monday to ask that headline writers not get cute when you're talking about the possibility of nuclear war. Can we not call it popping a nuke, please? Seriously. What, is that, what does it mean? And then I skimmed the article, but the headline was too stupid for me to get. And it's just sort of more like, here are some, you know, we should take this threat seriously. Mm-hmm. And here are some ways to respond to it. it seemed totally boilerplate. Please let us, let I us today more. bury the phrase popping a nuke. I want to point out too, uh, there was a death over the weekend that we ought to note. 
um, extensive obituaries in both the Washington Post and the New York Times. This is the death of Kathy Boudin. Kathy Boudin uh, is not a household word, a household name to most Americans. She's the mother of San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Boudin. Uh, but more importantly than that, she was one of the original members of the Weather Underground. And um, she was involved in the accidental bombing of a townhouse in Greenwich Village in the 1970s to protest the the Vietnam War. She was actually in the shower when the bomb went off. Um, it was unstable as her colleagues were building it in the house's basement. She escaped from the house naked and a, a neighbor gave her clothes. And in the chaos of the immediate aftermath of the bombing, she sort of escaped the scene and vanished for the next 11 years. In those 11 years, she became pregnant with Chesa Boudin. And then in the early 1980s was arrested. She, she was charged with murder, originally with three counts of murder, because she was involved in um, the heist of an armored car in New York City, where two policemen and one of the Brinks uh, truck uh, guards were killed. Her attorney was William Kunstler, the great, uh, the great criminal defense attorney, and, um, and he got a deal for her. The deal was 20 to life. Uh, her comrades, one of whom is the father of Chesa Bodine, uh, got life without parole. So she was, she was released. She earned a PhD in college. I, I'm sorry, in college. She earned a PhD in prison. And when she got out of prison, became a professor at uh, Columbia University and set up a nonprofit to help people being released from prison to reenter society. Uh, uh, one of our guests on the show, uh, Bill Ayers, the, the famed um, uh, professor of education uh, from Chicago, raised Chesa Bodine and uh, was a member of the Weather Underground with Kathy Bodine and others. Um, anyway, she, she had a very important uh, place in in uh, Vietnam era American history. And I, I wanted to point that out. She was 78 years old and she died of cancer. Okay. Well, we have a lot of great guests today. We have Dr. David Walalu. We have Joe Loria from Consortium News, the always excellent Dan Lazar and our friend Daniel McAdams. So stay tuned. You're listening to Political Misfits. We're going to take a short break and come back with our first guest. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi met with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky over the weekend. She pledged Washington's continued support for Ukraine and its war with Russia and was given Ukraine's highest civilian honor. It is not called the Order of the Grand Puba. I was joking. Uh, President Biden will go to Eastern Europe at the end of this week to drum up additional support for NATO's position on the war. And the European Union this week will consider new sanctions against Russia, as well as a very complicated plan to phase out all Russian oil and gas imports. 
Meanwhile, the Europeans are working this week to try to restart the Iran nuclear deal, which would give them at least a little wiggle room on energy. We're joined by Dr. David Walalu. He's an international geopolitical consultant, global speaker, author, veteran, and former international security analyst in Washington, D.C. He's the host of the Geopolitics in Conflict show on YT, and his latest book is called The Dynamics of Russia's Geopolitics, Remaking of the Global Order. Welcome back. Good to be with you, John and Michelle. Good to talk to you. We're always happy to have you. Um, I wanted to take a minute to talk about this opinion piece in The Hill first. Uh, it appeared this morning by Brahma Chalani called Why Sanctions Against Russia May Not Work. It's interesting because it raises but does not totally answer the question of what working means. And, you know, this is a debate that we've had throughout history from the early 1960s with sanctions on Cuba through the whole sanctions regime on Iran and then on Iraq. And here we are in what is this, 2022? And uh, we still don't really have a, a comprehensive policy on on sanctions. Um, sanctions are often imposed ostensibly to, uh, I'm sorry, ostensibly to, pre- to prevent a behavior. Uh, at least that's what we're told. Oftentimes, though, it's to punish a behavior. Uh, then when that behavior comes to pass anyway, well, sanctions, it turns out, are never preventive. Never mind what we were saying the last time we talked about sanctions. And then we're told sanctions are targeted. And that was something we heard a lot. Oh, yeah. Targeted uh, sanctions. Don't worry. They only hurt these specific guys who we hold specifically responsible for this decision. Right. And then when children start dying and hospitals can't get supplies, then Mm -hmm. they say, oh, no, no, they actually can. The government's just chose not to. Mm -hmm. We used to hear that about Saddam Hussein all the time. Uh, The sanctions are intended to punish key individuals, they tell us. But that's totally out the window now, too. And we're just talking openly about destroying the Russian economy which the president himself alluded to just a few days ago. Uh, And that is supposed to uh, somehow lead to the overthrow of Vladimir Putin. I think it's interesting that we're no longer pretending that sanctions don't hurt the populations of countries or that they aren't intended to push regime change, because that seems clear to me. Um, David, I don't know that a lot of people have noticed, but I think there's been an evolution in this discussion, and I want to get your thoughts about it. Should these admissions make the American people reconsider our deployment of sanctions as a policy? Well, that that is a great question, John. The question that we need to ask is whether Americans are are well-informed to understand Uh the policies emanating from Washington, whether they benefit the country or the benefit of the few elites in Washington that dictates or controls Congress. That is the first thing, the question we need to ask. And sadly to say, uh, I will go with the latter, that most Americans are Mm -hmm. ill-informed. Why? Because they are so distracted by so many other incendiaries that for whatever reason, by design from Washington, is meant to keep the people away from focusing on what the issues are. So to go back to your point as far as the sanctions, well, as you alluded at the beginning of your introductory, sanctions have not worked. Mm-hmm. We've tried them mm-hmm. on so many countries, Venezuela, Cuba, uh, some in European, uh, in Eastern Europe back then, Africa, it did not work. Mm-hmm. Why? Because the sanctions were supposed to be a tool as part of foreign policy. Mm-hmm. In other words, 
you do have some in, some instruments, informed policy tool, but now we seems to be focusing heavily on sanctions that end up not impacting the government, but rather individual uh, members of whatever country that, that is targeted by that. Well, this is one reason, David, why I think it is possible that these particular sanctions could uh, start to make people take notice because the whole point of this op-ed was to say these sanctions are not actually hurting Russia's economy. In fact, they are hurting ours and those of our allies. And the people that are suffering the most are the populations of the world's smaller and poorer countries. Uh, it also has a sort of funny line that says runaway inflation and supply chain disruptions are threatening Western corporate profits. Actually, I do not think that is true. I think that's a falsehood. Corporate profits are actually fine. Consumers are suffering. Consumers are suffering as a result of inflation. You know, you and I are suffering. Corporations have uh, across the board been able to raise raise their prices enough to more than offset uh, that that inflation bump. And so, you know, I think that it is possible, especially when you have uh, articles going, hey, man, all the all that's happening is that these sanctions are hurting us is that maybe um, this will make people start to to pay some attention. And, and I wonder what you what people what you think they should take away from this one that the sanctions are basically hurting them hurting the people of Europe hurting uh, quite a lot of people around the world while Amazon and Chevron and the like are able to protect themselves by jacking up prices and no government seems interested in doing anything about it well I couldn't agree more with your assertion Michelle you are absolutely spot on it's because here is the issue that most, as I said again, most Americans are ill-informed. At least now they are recognizing when they go to Walmart, when they go to Target, when they go to Home Depot or Lowe's, whatever that is, or grocery stores, they are noticing prices are going up. You're looking at housing prices. You're looking at fuel prices. You're looking at commodities and stuff. I mean, right now, New York and New Jersey residents owe about $2.4 billion to public service companies. You know, there are now companies inside the United States for utilities that are threatening to cut off electricity if the bills are not paid. Mm -hmm. And the same thing now is happening in Europe. Europeans now are realizing, when I say Europeans, I am referring to people, not the government, because the government in Europe, which I always call it, Europe is the child that never grows up. OK, because that's how it is. European leaders have to follow what the United States says. You know, now in Germany, the average citizen is noticing the price hikes in, 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 in commodities and so forth. And this is why, which we will not hear much in the Western media, that now Europe is rethinking its relations with China in light of the sanctions, because they are realizing they, Europeans, that they've been shackled following United States policies that drag them into the chaos that exists right now, economically speaking. So uh, let me ask you about the future of sanctions. You know, we're talking about just squeezing the life out of the, the Russian energy sector. And we, we've you know, even before the invasion of, of Ukraine, we were putting great pressure on the Germans to to cut off Nord Stream 2. We just didn't want that that uh, Russian gas to to enter Germany. And the Germans told us, look, we're dependent on it. And it's not just the Germans, but it's the, the, the Greeks, it's the, the Poles and the Hungarians and a whole bunch of different countries really are reliant on on Russian gas. So here we are, let's say two phases later in energy sanctions 
And we're encouraging these countries to talk about, to talk to Qatar, for example, the world's largest producer of gas, uh, to talk to Egypt about buying what little gas they have, uh, and trying to uh, bring the Iranians back online. As crazy as this sounds, here's the United States now not standing in the way of the Europeans, bringing the Iranians back online so that the Iranians can sell gas and oil to, uh, to Europe. So. Do you, do you think there's any chance of success? Can you actually foresee a Europe, a Western Europe, that does not buy a Russian oil and gas? No, I don't see that. And, and the evidence to that, John, is just what just happened with Hungary, for example. Well, Hungary now is saying to the European Union, forget about it. We're going to pay in ruble. We're going to pay the Russians for their gas. Because why? Bulgaria... Uh, Bulgaria, mm -hmm. Hungary, Poland, Romania, Slovakia, almost the majority of Eastern Europe, in addition to Germany, they all depend heavily on the Russian gas. And now what the European Union or European Parliament wants to do is to show that there is this solidarity and unity, which is nothing but a lie, because Hungary made it clear to the European Union that, no, we are not going to follow what you are saying, because it is not in our interest. I am certain Hungary is making this decision based on its own interest. This is not about being uh, uh, scared of Russian, whatever. No, no, it has nothing to do with that. And you look at the other side of the argument, you look at now what's going on in Poland. Well, Russia just cut off the delivery of gas for both Poland and Bulgaria. And both of them depend heavily on Russia. And they, they, they cut it off because Russia was asking for payments in ruble. So to me, it became clear that in the case of Poland, it's nothing but another puppet, basically doing what the United States is saying, or the West for that, or European Union for that matter. As a matter of fact, my big concern right now, as a geopolitical analyst, for the statement that just came out this morning from the foreign ministry in Poland, that now they are okay with allowing nukes on their territory. And to me, that's a big concern. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the it Russian red concern. lines. <clears throat> exactly. And I'm not going to rule out the option that Russia is going to react by using tactical nuclear weapons, you know, in this case, just in case. But also what raises my other concern, as I look at always the moving parts to form that geopolitical puzzle is now the conversation in Stockholm and Helsinki about the possibility of joining NATO. And that's again, is another red line for the Russians. So when you look at Europe as a whole, <clears throat> pardon me, especially in Eastern Europe, <clears throat> you're looking at fragmentation that exists within, except it's not coming out to the surface. And Germany is realizing this more than any other country, given yes. its dependency on Russian gas. What should we expect in the way of additional sanctions? What's what's left to even sanction? What, what additional sanctions could there possibly be? And what's the purpose of sanctions? You know, I think we're probably all in agreement here that the purpose of these sanctions is to is to deprive the Russian people of what they need to live so that they become so angry that they rise up against their government. After all, that's exactly what the State Department said was the point of sanctions 
against Cuba, against Iran, and against Iraq. Do you see the same thing in, in Russia? Is that why we have these sanctions? Yeah, but at the same time, using history as my guide, did we succeed in Cuba? No, we failed did everywhere we, we tried. In Iran? Everywhere. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> exactly. And that's the same scenario is going to be in play out when it comes down to Russia. Here is one thing that we in the West, some of us miss. We don't understand Russian history. We don't understand if you go back to the 10th century during Peter the Great, you will understand how Russians feel about what, what it's like to be a Russian. You know, we don't understand those dynamics. You get some schmuck in Washington this year reading a book about Russia and calling him or herself. I am the expert on Russia. We don't even understand it. Russians gonna stand together no matter what. They're gonna move forward with this. And now with these sanctions, it's becoming more absolute as we move forward. Because here is the thing. Since we implemented sanctions, the rubles has moved up. Yeah, considerably. The Russian economy is, <laughs> the Russian economy is fine. And what came with all this is the idea now that you get the majority of countries in the global south looking positively about the possibility of trade yeah. using yeah. different yes, currency than the U.S. dollar. Look no further than India, China, and, and Pakistan. This is something that I think most people, including most Americans, don't understand. Most of the countries in the world do not have sanctions on Russia, right? They're trading freely with Russia. And if there's anything that the Russians want, the Chinese want, the Iranians want, so many other countries want, it's to be able to pay for goods and services uh, in, a, in a currency other than the dollar. And we saw it w with this agreement between the, the Saudis and the Chinese, between the Kuwaitis and the Chinese a week later, where they're paying uh, in, uh, in yuan. And... Uh, and, you know, we, we've heard rumors since the 70s about uh, the idea of dropping the dollar as the as the international um, uh, currency of choice, going to a basket of currencies, going to something backed by gold or whatever. And nothing like that ever worked. Now it's different. Now we may have pushed people just a little too far. And so you're right. It, this could be bad for the United States in the end, not necessarily bad for Russia. Absolutely correct, John, because now it is done out of necessity, economic necessity. That's that right. is what now prompting countries like China, Russia, even India, which is considered an ally. Right. They, they, they flat out, they flat out said to the U.S., no, we're going to trade with Russia using rubles and rupees, whether you like it or not, you the West for that matter. So what can we do? Because nothing, because you can ignore the Indian market because over 1.4 billion people, right. consumers that is. So just between China and India markets, Russia will be fine when it comes down to the delivery of its energy. Forget about Europe, even if they wanna cut it off. It's not, but they are also seen, when I say they, I'm referring to China, Russia, Pakistan, India, Turkey, Iran, Saudi Arabia, you name it. Global South, they are looking now at a mechanisms as far as the financial infrastructure that will allow them that ability to trade in other currencies, bypassing the SWIFT system altogether. And I think that's where we are headed.
What do you see as the Iranian role in all this? This seems to me to be an opportunity for the Iranians. The the Europeans want the Iranians uh, to be able to trade. Uh, they'd like to see the uh, reinstitution of the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA. It, it it looks like this is an opportunity for Iran. What do you think? It is the perfect, perfect opportunity, geopolitically speaking, because when you think about the Middle East, who do you think of? I mean, which can literally let's let's uh, do, we, do we think about Saudi Arabia? Sure. No. No. Do, Iran. Do we think about Turkey. Yeah. You think about Iran, and this is why last week. <clears throat> Both Iran and China decided to expand their military ties. Now, when I say military ties, I am referring also to a, a trade that exists between the two countries, which is going to converge over using the, uh, the, uh, uh, their own currency, bypassing the U.S. dollar. Because also China sees in Iran as the, the gate to the Middle East that can influence, but also because China needs a lot of energy and Iran will be able to provide that. Mm -hmm. As far as the deal, the GCPUA, the US is dragging its feet. They are not gonna reach, they would have reached a deal by now, but Iran is moving forward. And if I am to predict something here, I will say that down the road, I will not be surprised, John, if Iran will said, hey, we're done with NPT altogether. We are not going to be a signatory to the non-proliferation treaty uh, and, and be over and Iran can go any direction he wants at that time because it won't matter. They are moving east where things are headed trade-wise, economic-wise, and you look in even Saudi Arabia now, as you mentioned uh, earlier, they are willing to accept payments in the UN. And that tells me right there where things are headed. And, you know, there's a precedent for this, too. Michelle and I were talking about this months ago. One of the things that, that the Saudis have done for many, many years is because they have so much money, right? They're just swimming in money. They'll buy um, Russian arms, Chinese arms, French arms, and then they'll never take it out of the crates. They just send it all to these big warehouses and it sits there and they never use it. They never bring it online. That way they're able to make this purchase. These other countries are happy that they've got this this arms sale relationship with Saudi Arabia. The United States is happy because the Saudis aren't using these different systems and we continue to make arms sales to the Saudis. Well, here we are now with the Saudis saying instead of using Chinese weapons, which they don't really want, they're going to throw the Chinese another another bone by by paying for the weapons in Yuan. And the Chinese are thrilled. Well, that used to be a red line for the United States. And once that line is crossed and other countries see that it's okay to do, that the deal actually works out, like Kuwait and possibly the Emirates and anybody else, like you said a moment ago, even India with its 1.4 billion consumers, you know, it changes the world economy. And I said a moment ago, I, I think the United States has bitten off more than it can chew here. Well, indeed, John, I argued this point in my Saudi book. It's called Beneath the Veil, Fall of the House of Saud back then. And I argued that, <clears throat> pardon me, I argued that it will be just a matter of time before Saudis pivot eastward 
towards, because that's where the global economy center of gravity is going to be. Mm -hmm. And the Saudis won't want to be left behind. And the, the example I'm going to give your listeners about this is when the Saudis in 2018 decided <clears throat> to sign a, an agreement with the Chinese to build brand new refineries in China worth yeah. about $10 billion. Yes, absolutely and right. The yeah, here is the thing, John. When we, the United States, ask the Saudis to upgrade the refineries we have in Houston, and I live in Texas, and I am aware of when I drive to Houston to see which the, those refineries need an upgrade, Saudis said no. Because one, they wanted to stay dependent on them, on their oil. And second, <clears throat> they want to maintain the dependency of the United States while at the same time pivoting. Uh, Saudi is pivoting towards China. And this is why they're moving into that direction. And the indication of last, uh, I think, three weeks or four weeks ago, when the Saudis announced that now they're going to be accepting the payments for the energy delivery in the yuan, to me, was an indication of where that trend is headed. One last question for you. President Biden said last week that he wanted Congress to um, appropriate another $33 billion for Ukraine. But but Congress isn't in session right now. And President Zelensky complained to Nancy Pelosi over the weekend that he needs this aid immediately. Uh, now, what what most of this is, frankly, is never going to make its way to Ukraine. It goes directly to U.S. arms manufacturers and then they send the arms to Ukraine. What's the plan for this aid package? What do you expect to happen? And what do you expect Pelosi to do? Is she going to call Congress back into session? Uh, are the Ukrainians just going to have to wait for it? What do you think is going to happen? Well, actually, she can't do a squat about it. Pardon my language here. And the reason being, John, is because, <clears throat> just for your listener to know, it was a paragraph in the spending bill that was introduced in 2018, okay, in this paragraph specifically indicating that the assistance to Ukraine in the military aid, we have to be included in, in any appropriation of a spending bill, okay? Anytime they put it there, when time comes came for votes, they took it out, then put it back in, and now it is on again for this $33 billion. So basically, the uh, uh, military industrial complex that that controls Congress is going to be doing this as far as the delivery of weapons. Well, those weapons, you know what? They might not even end up in Ukraine. Right. Or even if they end up on Ukraine soil, they're going to get destroyed. Russians are aware of that. And they're going to do that. Look no further than what happened in Afghanistan. How much weapons we left behind? A $7 billion. Yep. <coughs> my... my my big concern, John, with all this, is we are doing this at the expense of American families. I mean, you look at streets now in Philadelphia. Yes. You look at streets in Detroit. You look at streets in, in, in whatever part of the country and how deteriorating infrastructure and how American families are struggling from, you know, just to me and me. Since when an American family will be struggling to decide whether to put gas in a, in a mm -hmm, car mm -hmm. or to buy dinner. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yet Congress is allocating $33 billion for what? That money is not going to see. I mean, all the aid we've been providing is in weapons. Have we ever provided anything else? 
You're and exactly most of that right. money ends up in some private accounts in Switzerland and all that. We all know how it works. We are shame on our government for not doing the right thing on behalf of the American people. And yeah, nobody but wants at the same to time, talk about oversight. Exactly. At the same time, that tells me, sadly, and it pains me to say this, John, it pains me to say that our system is corrupted to the core and something will have to change. Yes, indeed. We will leave it there. That was the voice of Dr. David Walalu. He is an international geopolitical consultant, global speaker, author, veteran, and former international security analyst here in Washington, D.C. He's the host of the Geopolitics and Conflict show on YT, and his latest book is called The Dynamics of Russia's Geopolitics, Remaking the Global Order. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll take a short break and come right back. to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are talking, as promised, a little bit more about uh, censorship efforts, right? Efforts both to, to shut down content and also to shut down funding avenues for independent media. And this is connected uh, to, I think, this new disinformation board that actually a lot of people, not just us, have raised their eyebrows about. And so Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas um, was doing the rounds on the news shows on Sunday talking about the disinformation board in addition to other topics and basically saying, no, 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 we're not actually going to do anything. We're not going to track anyone right he was walking this back to basically this is a this is a working group like this is a bunch of this is just a bunch of folks who get together for lunch at the department of homeland security folks there's nothing to worry about and so he was on with uh cnn's dana bash uh who was asking him okay look can, can you can you tell us exactly what this board is going to do and so i wanted to uh play a little clip of him attempting to explain what this board's mission is going to be. So here's Mayorkas talking to CNN's Dana Bash. So what it does is it works to ensure that the way in which we address threats, the connectivity between threats and acts of violence are addressed without infringing on free speech, protecting civil rights and civil liberties, the right of privacy. And the board, this working group, internal working group, will draw from best practices and communicate those best practices to the operators because the board does not have operational will, authority. Will American citizens be monitored? No. Guarantee what, that. Well, so what we do, we, we in the Department of Homeland Security don't monitor uh, American citizens. You don't, but will we, this board change that? No, no, no. The board does not have any operational authority or capability. What it will do is gather together best practices in addressing the threat of disinformation from foreign state adversaries, from the cartels, and disseminate those best practices to the operators that have been executing in addressing this threat for years. 
So you got to wonder if some of these best practices include uh, cutting independent media off from their sources of funding. Exactly. That has been happening. Absolutely. We spoke last week about Mint Press being dumped first from GoFundMe and then from PayPal. They were not the first. Uh, They are already not the last because Consortium News yesterday reported that its PayPal account had been suspended and that the money in it would be held for up to six months. And then, if applicable, will email you with information on how to withdraw any remaining money. That, if applicable, really uh, puts a lot of question marks as to whether there's going to be any money in that account. We are joined now by Joe Loria, who's the editor-in-chief of Consortium News, uh, to get more into what, what, what the state is right now. So, Joe, thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me back on. So uh, remind us now, uh, you know, how, how much money there was in that? Or, I mean, what did PayPal actually do? What have they seized from you? And, and how certain are you that you will get any of it back? Well, we're not certain at all. Uh, based on a customer service agent that I eventually got on the phone yesterday, who was quite sympathetic and as helpful as she could be. She probably gave away a little too much huh. because I asked her specifically about that. Uh, about she kept repeating what they'd written what we'd already read but I said what does this if applicable means and then she said that they will review over the next six months uh, this case and uh, if they decide that they suffered any harm they could keep our money as damages this is not a courtroom or a jury deciding damages a judge this is PayPal deciding where they're going to keep our money without any Input from us in this process whatsoever. Yes. Wow. $9,000, a little more than 9000 to answer your other question. Yes. Fortunately, we got, we didn't have a huge amount in there. Sometimes we did. And I had instructed our accounts person to pay off our writers and bring it down to 100 And damn it, if they didn't do it a day before we stopped paying off our writers. Mm-hmm. As if they knew. Wow. This is just outrageous. And I, I know that... There's a uh, I I read your article, of course, on consortiumnews.com. I would encourage everybody to uh, to read it. Uh, you had a lot of background in there and you said that there's already a class action suit pending against a PayPal in Northern California for for doing exactly this. Can you tell us a little bit about that and whether or not you think that that's an avenue that consortium news can take? Well, this is all still pretty fresh for us, and we're yeah. uh, considering various options. Uh, the main thing right now is to get other vehicles to help try to replace PayPal, so that's what we're concentrating on now. But that is an interesting case. It was reported by Bloomberg back in January. It seems to be still an active case, although I need to do a pace search to see what the update is. But yes, it's exactly what uh, they did to us is what they did to these plaintiffs. So whether we would approach them to join them or think of our own or find some new people, we have we can't say at this point. But it does show that what they did to us is is actionable because there's a lawsuit and it wasn't thrown out. So there actually uh, uh, is a way to sue them for what they did to us. This is unbelievable that they would have this kind of power. Now, you can take away Russia's three hundred billion dollars in reserves in the U.S. and You could take away yachts from uh, oligarchs, but there are laws passed for that. And the Treasury Department, whether we agree with these uh, actions or not, there's there's a law behind it. All the sanctions, the Treasury Department runs it. There's no such thing here. There's no such thing. And whether the government was involved in this decision or not is something we probably won't know uh, because they're not answering any of those kinds of questions. However, this customer service agent did tell me that there were no customer complaints. There was no history of any of our 
funders complaining they didn't get what they get, what they paid for, whatever. So where did this originate? That's a question that maybe in discovery in a, in a suit could yeah. shine light. Wow. I, I have to ask you, too, um, uh, where where a small independent news site can go if if this is political in nature. And I mean, it seems clear to me that this is political in nature. You just pretty much confirmed it to me in that there were no customer complaints. This sounds to me like there's somebody at PayPal who doesn't like Consortium News' politics. Where can a a site like Consortium News go uh, where it can't be harmed by big tech like this? Is it even possible to go somewhere? Well, uh, first of all, they they restricted activities in the user agreement. It says that uh, a restricted activity is providing false, inaccurate, or misleading information right. to PayPal, other PayPal, or to third parties, which would be the public. So I that's the only part of the agreement that I could think of that applies here. Where can we go? I don't know. Where did someone who was in a Stalin show try go, yeah. trial go? Right. I mean, I don't know. There is nowhere to go. That is what's so chilling about this. Uh, except to the court to sue, as we just yes. discussed. That is the only avenue to take legal action. Uh, this goes beyond that because it's not just that they're harming us and that some donations didn't uh, didn't come through over the last couple of days or that we may not get this $9,000 back, as bad as that is. This goes way beyond that, John, as you know, because this is about enforcing a single narrative about this war. Oh, that was and my you next question. Deviate from that. Yeah. All right. You want to ask it, or should we? Yeah. To my my next answering? question was, you know, it's <laughs> it's consortium news. It's Mint Press news. It's people like Caleb Maupin. Um, it seems to me that the common thread here is is Ukraine coverage. Is that what this is about? I, I don't have. I have very little doubt. I have a hundred percent certainty. No, I don't have that. But everything seems to add up to that because of this false and accurate misleading information. And it's clear that you're not allowed to talk about the causes of this war, John. Now let's look. Historians look back on the Versailles Treaty and the onerous conditions it imposed on Germany as a cause of rise of Nazism and the Second yes. World War. That is yes. no way excusing the Nazis or justifying the Nazis, right? Right. So we can't write about the causes of this war. The fact that the NATO and the U.S. ignored the treaty proposals, that they never implemented Minsk, that there was an eight-year civil war going on, and that neo-Nazis are very active and very influential, despite their small numbers in the parliament. They are very – they are a force to be reckoned with in Ukraine. You can't say any of that. That's excised from corporate media, mm-hmm. even if it's true. So this is the idea that they want total control of the narrative, even a small independent set like us. We have very little influence compared to CNN or The New York Times, obviously. Why can't they just disagree with us and leave us alone? No, they want to crush and stamp out any little spark of dissent because it could join up with Men Press, with Grey Zone, with you guys, and this could start something. And they are afraid of that, obviously. Oh, they wouldn't take these kinds of measures against us to try to to shut us down in a way, little by little. And this is the worrying thing here is these things are step by step. Yeah. We don't know what's coming next. I want to ask Joe about some of the, the justification that's offered 
for these actions. And right, the disinformation board was just announced on Friday. We will see if it's been behind some of this uh, shutdown. But we already saw, you know, we saw the the trucker convoy in Ottawa. However you feel about that convoy, you know, GoFundMe shut down their fundraising. Um, Mm -hmm. And at first threatened to keep the money and distribute it to charities and then decided to give it back. So Mayorkas uh, on Sunday said uh, in the clip we just heard, he said, I want to ensure that the way we address threats, the connectivity between threats and acts of violence are addressed without infringing on free speech and privacy. And I think the, the connection between disinformation and violence is being really pushed right now. And it feels like something kind of new, you know, I mean, no one is disputing, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be able to make violent threats to people. Hate speech is something that is, you know, been unremarkably disallowed on social media platforms and on media platforms in general for a very long time. Um, But usually when they're talking about disinformation, you know, we're talking about opinions that run counter to NATO's position or support for countries who are presented as baddies or, you know, reports on COVID mitigation methods that call their efficacy into question and that kind of thing. And so I'm wondering about this this trend to say the reason we are stamping this down is because it could lead to violence. And does all this also kind of come back? Because, I mean, of course, the the glaring counterexample to this is January 6th and all the reporting about the election being being stolen. But I don't see that being invoked here at all. And I, I kind of wonder I wanted to ask you about that, Joe. How do you feel about seeing, you know, this, this idea that we have to stamp out this information or collect best practices to control it because of threats of violence? I think it's a big stretch. But the United States, and I don't want to equiv- uh, equate it with Nazi Germany, but when you look at Nazi Germany, they just didn't go and pick up people and throw them in concentration camps and kill them. They passed laws first. Right. This is the most insidious. This is not ancient you know, Mongols or uh, the Huns or any ancient dictator or a leader who would just kill somebody. They have laws now, and this is really scary because there is no law like I described about the PayPal thing, but it could be coming. They could extend it. They are making a legal stretch, in my opinion, here where we are, by reporting we're doing about Ukraine, that we are somehow enabling violence in Ukraine because we're not supporting the end of this war through a victory by Ukraine. We are not supporting either side, actually, in this war. We're just trying to explain it. So I think they're trying to some legal contortions in this thinking that somehow they want to link violence because that's the word they use. There is a potential risk. You know, uh, it's a potential risk, a security issue with us. That's the language they used in the email they sent. What security? Who are we threatening? I think they could try to make an argument that we're threatening Ukrainian people somehow because we're not standing with them the way we're supposed to. That's the only thing I could think of. But we're in uncharted territory here, so I don't really know. Yeah, how, how this is not theft, I don't understand. I'm not an attorney. I understand you're not an attorney. But. You can't. I mean, this is the United States. You can't just have a private company just take somebody's money. Well, the cops can. The cops can. That's right. Yeah, yeah. the cops can. can, But but I'd like to know where PayPal believes the law says they can just seize uh, an organization's funds and and tell you to lump it. You know, I, I, I do not think they have a law. I think they're going by their rules. And the rules say that they can hold on to this money for 180 days and then decide whether to return it. Yeah. And that decision will be whether there were any damages owed to PayPal. That and is that is acting like a court. 
a, yeah, a judge it is. who awards damages, and they're going to award damages to themselves. To themselves. On, based on their own evidence and their own, and in a secret way, obviously. We're not privy to any of this at all. I noticed. So, in, I mean, there's, a real, there's real trouble here with this. Absolutely yeah, legal. real, real trouble. I noticed in the, the article that you cited, the Bloomberg article that you cited, they referenced a, a guy who had won the World Series of yeah. Poker in 2003, and um, he tweeted – Hey, if anybody had money confiscated by by PayPal, uh, reach out to my attorneys. They're planning a class action suit. And as soon as he tweeted that, uh, PayPal backed off and gave him his money back. So I wonder right. if if they realize, you know, we're on shaky legal ground here. We're going to try to intimidate these people. And if they fight back, well, then we're just going to have to walk away. I hope. I hope that's what happens. And and I hope that Consortium News is able to find legal counsel to go after these guys because, my God, we it's like as Americans, we just can't allow them to get away with something like this. This is exactly. a very slippery this is way slope. More than nine Sorry, this is way more than $9,000 or exactly. even a larger number for other people. Sure, we would love to have the money back, but it's not about that for us. Uh, if we were over a hundred grand, maybe it would be more. But right now, clearly, this is a principle. Seriously, this is a principle that cannot – that we're seeing eroded every day here. Uh, uh, combine it all, and we never forget Julian Assange is in the center of this. That's right. Because yeah. they have the, – he is the symbol of all of this and the worst treatment of all of us, uh, obviously. But it's now expanding out Absolutely. to more and more uh, media outlets that mm-hmm. don't toe the line. Mm-hmm. This is a to- – as I said, they want to t- total control narrative, and the word total isn't totalitarian. Hey, and Joe, I don't use the word lightly. I don't use we're going to have to wrap it up there because we're coming up on a hard Thank break. You, but that was editor-in-chief of Consortium News, Joe Loria. Really appreciate you joining us. We are Political Misfits. We'll be right back after a short break. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, and we were just talking about uh, the, I'm going to say, new uh, ability of uh, attempts to uh, throttle the fundraising abilities of independent media by these uh, private financial companies just decide, deciding when they have been wounded and when they haven't, when they've incurred damages by, you know, allowing these media sources to use their platforms or not. We're going to talk uh, kind of in the same theme, theme about new efforts in the United States to make it easier to seize the assets of uh, Russian oligarchs, also to make it easier for the U.S. to work with foreign company or countries, foreign governments to do Washington's bidding when it comes to seizing those assets. We're also going to talk a little bit about some economic news in the United States, and we're going to talk about growing support for the BDS movement, or maybe we're talking one step forward and one step back. We'll let our guest be the judge of that. We're joined by Dan Lazar. He's a journalist and a writer. Dan, thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. So let's talk about these efforts to seize the assets of Russian oligarchs in the United States, because John and I find ourselves in the strange position of uh, going, 
I mean, I definitely I would like us to eat the rich, but I kind of want us to do it in a different fashion. Uh, A proposal was put forth uh, last month by the U.S. government. Uh, Yesterday, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said that provisions for seizing and selling these assets and funneling the money from their sale to Ukraine is going to be in the aid package that Congress is uh, supposed to be hammering out right now. And some of these new processes that uh, the Biden administration has suggested are creating a new criminal offense, making it unlawful for any person to knowingly or intentionally possess proceeds directly obtained from corrupt dealings with the Russian government. That language sounds kind of fuzzy to me. It also wants to update our definition of racketeering to include sanctions evasion. And as I said, to enhance our ability to work with other governments to seize assets at Washington's request. Uh, Last week, the House passed a measure to allow these assets to be seized, liquidated and passed on to Ukraine through various forms of aid. Also notably to be uh, given for humanitarian and development assistance for the Russian people. Interesting phrasing. And so I guess, Dan, I mean, sh- is there anything here to celebrate or should we really be concerned about some of the, the fuzzy language in here? Like what exactly corrupt dealings are when we know uh, in the case of Washington, D.C., we are talking about having a very flexible understanding of, of corruption. Yeah, I, I mean, there there are a thousand things that are wrong with this uh, this this program. The, mm-hmm. the language is very fuzzy. Um, uh, so, what are corrupt dealings? What are what what are sanctions ev- evasions? Right. Um, the other problem is that Joe Biden would become a you know judge, prosecutor, uh, defense attorney, and uh, an executioner. Mm-hmm. There's 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 no there's no provision for you know any kind of judicial review, uh, any kind of, you know, any review at all. Um, and so, uh, so Biden would have virtual carte blanche to seize this, these funds or these assets. And, uh, and, and Biden himself, who was accused to Russia of everything from genocide to, I don't know what, um, is, uh, is hardly a neutral party in these, in these cases. Uh, and then there are other issues which are equally as important. I mean, uh, the the Biden administration has seized billions of dollars in overseas assets held by the Afghan government at a time when Afghanistan is seeing mass starvation. It's an incredibly cruel uh, process, but somehow it seems to be sort of justified by the same kind of foreign policy peak. And then then finally, there's the issue of of the U.S. itself serving as a as a as an international center for money laundering and uh, and asset hiding. Uh, I mean, South Dakota is is the most notorious single state since it, is, it has you know marketed itself internationally as a haven for hot money. Um, but 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 Joe Biden's own Delaware is not far behind. So, you know, so so suddenly it seems the U.S. is going to be completely arbitrary as to what kind of funds can hide here, what kind of funds cannot hide here. The whole thing seems to be inconsistent and really fundamentally lawless. So there's a lot to worry about here. And I think that uh, that the U.S. is behaving in a way which just strikes me as as really kind of irrational, uh, angry, uh, um, unreflective, unsystematic, et cetera. Sounds Trumpy 
Dan? I thought we I thought we got rid of that problem. I thought we got rid of the lawless, erratic president who just wanted, you know, uh, let let do what thou willst be the whole of the law for the United States, you know? Yeah, that does that is reminiscent of Trump. So, so either either Biden is as bad as Trump, or both are both guys are merely reflective of a kind of a, an angry U.S. system, which has a lot of holes in it, is is totally inconsistent, um, and and has one law for for me and another law for thee. So, uh, so I think it's really a, it's it's a very bad policy. I mean, so you bring up Afghanistan, and it does seem to. I mean, this is going to be a slight exaggeration, but really, I mean, the fact that we also, uh, you know, in this in this fact sheet that the Biden administration put out, they say like the the government of Spain a month ago helped us, you know, seized a, a yacht. By some some oligarchs yacht at our request with the idea being that, you know, it will be a good thing if uh, any government in the world can get a U.S. request to seize some asset and, and do it. And so it sort of becomes like the United States is, you know, going to be the global banker. And it's not it's not just can you have your money or not. We'll decide the form you get it in. Right. Ukraine is just going to Ukraine's going to get all this money in cryptocurrency and weapons. You know, Afghanistan, well, you can't have your own currency and maybe we'll send it back to you in the form of like grants for specific programs. But it really is, you know, it is it, it, it results in the exercise of a certain amount of political control as well. Yeah. I mean, by calling it a, calling the U.S. a global global banker, I think yeah. is really actually too kind because, mm. you know, because banks generally generally, you know, uh, uh, observe certain rules. But the U.S. is really kind of a, a global Al Capone. Deciding, you know, who gets to hold on to what and who doesn't. And meanwhile, you know, you know, cast your mind back to 2003. I mean, did other countries in the world, you know, seize U.S. assets in response to the invasion of Iraq? Did they did they decide which which American opera singers could perform and which ones could not? You know, which which U.S. artists had to had to had to grovel and to criticize their own government before they could appear in some, some theatrical production or, or, or play a, a, a piano concert. I mean, it's, it's all so fantastically one-sided. Uh, it, it's amazing. Um, but yet the U.S. thinks it's perfectly fine. Yeah. It's it is. I mean, again, I've, it is a strange position to find myself in going, hey, hey, hold on a second before we seize that guy's yacht, you know, because <laughs> usually I'm all for it. But again, it does. You know, it is, there is blowback and you don't even have to wait very long to to feel it. As we, we were talking to Joe Loria just now about PayPal's uh, uh, freezing uh, consortium news account, you know, it's, it's like you, you don't even have to wait for karma to come around the corner. Uh, I also want, Dan, I want to sort of switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit more about some um, economic news in the United States. After last week, uh, we learned that the first quarter of this year had been an economic contraction. We got more bad news from Wall Street today that U.S. stock futures had fallen in April and had their worst month since the pandemic began. This is being attributed uh, in some way also to the the Federal Reserve meeting that's going to come on Wednesday, after which we will probably get another rate hike. So there is a lot of talk about a market in the United States that is jittery and nervous. But I can't help but notice that at the same time, all of these uh, nervous people are still making money. 
right? Also, according to the Wall Street Journal, more than 80% of companies that have reported quarterly earnings so far have beat analysts' expectations. And last week, we got into some of the many, many companies that have taken advantage of the economic fog of war and pandemic uh, to jack up their prices, supposedly to offset inflation, and and in fact, to make record profits. And so I wonder, you know, how, how real is any of this economic fear if all the big boys are still making money hand over fist? Well, I think I think the fear is the fear is quite real. I mean, I think this is this is something something important is going on here. I think that Wall Street is uh, is grossly overextended. Mm. I think that market discipline has uh, has shrunk to zero. Uh, these guys on Wall Street and gals, I should add, have been making money hand over fist. Um, and what we've seen over the last twelve years or so since the two thousand eight, nine financial meltdown has been a huge wealth transfer mm-hmm. uh, to the uh, to the to the, the Wall Street financial cl- class. Mm-hmm. Uh, and essentially, the Federal Reserve has has been um, subsidizing financial speculation. So rents have gone bonkers. Mm-hmm. Financial assets have gone bonkers. And now ordinary commodities are are starting to shoot upwards mm-hmm. so the federal reserve has has no choice really but to raise interest rates and that is a that this always happens the fed always talks about a soft landing you know so the soft landing is something that everybody's looking for but no one ever achieves because the landing is always hard always harder than expected so wall street is starting to panic Wall Street is starting to worry about where this is going, and they're worried about the medicine that, that the, uh, the Federal, Federal Reserve uh, is about to apply. Now, the other thing that's really funny and really ironic is that the economic warfare, the sanctions that the U.S. is using against uh, Russia are really backfiring because, because – Russia actually is doing better than expected. It's still seeing a lot of pain, but its major assets are actually increasing in value as a consequence of the sanctions, uh, which are adding to inflation. So, so energy, oil, gas, grains, fertilizer, all of which are our major Russian exports, are rising in value. Therefore, Russian assets are actually increasing. Mm-hmm. And Russia is is seeing something of an economic cushion. Mm-hmm. Uh, the U.S. is is doing less well uh, because I think Wall Street is in a really bad spot. Uh, and it's very jittery because because it's very unstable. Uh, so therefore, the, the the sanctions are there's a real problem of blowback here, where the sanctions are actually destabilizing things in the U.S. and are having an especially horrible impact uh, on Europe, uh, and ultimately, finally, of course, are are, are causing something close to, to catastrophe in the global south. Uh, the New York The New York Times had an article on Saturday saying that 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 forty seven export control controls have been put in place around the world uh, over the last year, I think it was, and forty three since the invasion of of the Ukraine. So inflation is rising so so strongly that countries like Indonesia feel that they've got to stop exporting palm oil. Other countries are are, are are also putting in place export controls. And meanwhile, 
food insecurity is growing dramatically across the global South and in the U.S. as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I I was looking for this story that I, I noticed this morning and I couldn't remember where it was. I think it was the Wall Street Journal, but I'm not sure. Um, but it was talking about how, you know, Russia uh, it was dipping into its deep pockets of currency reserves to uh, support the population in different ways. We're increasing pension payments and, and other things. And it made me think about this, the next topic that we're going to get to, which is some of this suffering that that Americans are feeling. Um, there was a report today that Americans are going back to food banks. Uh, this is also in the Wall Street Journal. It reports that a Metro Detroit food bank has seen demand increase from between 25 percent and 45 percent since December in the different areas it serves. In March alone, demand rose by 30 percent compared with the previous month. Feeding American, which has a network of 200 food banks and 60,000 pantries and meal programs, uh, found that 85 percent of its food banks saw demand for food assistance increase uh, or stay the same in February. Uh, that was a 20 percent increase from the previous survey in January. And so, you know, again, it, it goes to your point of who is actually feeling the effect of these sanctions. And, you know, uh, the the implication of this uh, story about, you know, Russia dipping into its pockets to help its citizens, that is always presented as, oh, you're trying to buy goodwill, right? You're trying to buy goodwill. But honestly, you know, in this moment in the United States, for all intents and purposes, COVID is finished, right? Some businesses still require masks, but everybody is supposed to be back to work. Nobody's getting extra support from the government. We haven't even funded testing and treatment for the immediate future, as people continue to get sick and die from this disease, as cases actually are rising again due to the Omicron subvariant here. And so, you know, it raises some questions as to what warrants government intervention and assistance and what doesn't. You know, I mean, the, the, the economic suffering that, that regular people are experiencing right now is definitely due to the pandemic, definitely uh, due to uh, the reaction to, to this conflict. And yet somehow it's like if it's not a disease, if it's not a, an act of God, but in fact, an act of our government, uh, we don't have to do anything to help you. And if other countries do well, they're just trying to buy your vote. Yeah. Well, yeah. First of all, the, the funny thing about Russia is that Russia's foreign exchange, uh, foreign exchange reserves, have actually increased mm -hmm. since the war. I mean, isn't that amazing? I mean, uh, and the <laughs> ruble, the ruble is far stronger now than it was uh, before the the invasion. Yeah. Well, I thought it was, I thought it merely had recovered all the lost ground since the inv invasion, and now is actually up a bit. But but far but foreign currency reserves have actually increased. I mean, that way, what better, what better, you know, metric is there of, of America's, you know, of the failure of the sanctions program? And, and secondly, food inflation is a big problem. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I ask people, I just go up to ordinary people and I ask them, you know, do you notice anything different? And I get looks as they say, oh, my God, they're stunned by the changes in food prices. I mean. Diets are altering as a consequence. They're buying less meat. They're buying more of other stuff. And, and the people who are really hard-pressed are going to food banks. Mm -hmm. So, And we'll see more of this, I'm sure, in the coming months. And by the way, it can't bode very well for Biden no. in November. And, uh, and, and yeah, and, but, but the funny thing, yes, and the U.S. is very arbitrary as to, as to you know, when it feels justified in doling out economic uh, you know, uh, 
uh, aid and, of course, and its criticisms of other countries like Russia, which, you know, which, are, which it accuses of trying, just trying to buy popularity. Um, but, the, uh, but, but, the, but also bear in mind that, that, that by keeping interest rates ultra low since the 2008 financial meltdown, uh, the U.S. has essentially been shoveling financial aid onto Wall Street. So, you know, so, so Wall Street gets literally trillions in financial aid, and the average person is lucky to wind up with, you know, with a few, you know, a few, a few bucks in his pocket in terms of a, Let me a ask, food stamp. I want to ask, a, maybe this is a dumb question, but like, uh, well, honestly, at some point, you need people to pay some of these rents, right? You need people to have enough money to buy products. And so you do wonder, like, if, uh, if you have Wall Street sort of roaring along, but people uh, increasingly unable to eat, like at some point, this the, does consumer spending matter at all anymore? I mean, I know it's still a metric that people look at. And when we got the reports last week that the um, the economy had actually contracted a little bit, everyone went, oh, yeah, but consumer spending is still high. Like, actually, it's fine. It's just a blip. And by next quarter, we'll be back on, you know, growth again. I don't know if that's going to be true or not. But like, you know, how, how small a fraction of the population can have any uh, spending power at all before everything starts to, you know, the springs all start to come loose? Well, yeah. I mean, listen. Consumer consumer spending is a still a major a major economic engine. There's no question about it. But yeah, I mean, if if if, I, if consumers are hard pressed, that slows everything down, and uh, and and consumers are under great stress now due to a combination of rising interest rates, which are pushing housing costs, you know, you know, through the ceiling, and rising f- uh, food and fuel costs. Which are also, you know, impacting on the on everyone's, you know, daily existence. Uh, you know, Americans are twice as Americans spend twice as much per capita for 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 highway fuel than other members of the uh, of the G20. I think it is. Um, so so America Americans are uniquely um, uh, vulnerable to fuel price increases, and therefore they're they're feeling the pinch. And uh, the, and the same thing goes for for food. I mean, Americans, I don't think Americans spend anything more than other people in the advanced industrial countries, but they are feel they are really hurting. They're really feeling the pain every time they go to the uh, to the store to buy milk or eggs or whatever. They're seeing a dramatic price increase. It is so sad. I mean, we we saw during the pandemic, you know, there were there were uh, a bunch of results and I think studies undertaken in 2021 to look at the results of some uh, direct government assistance in 2020. And we saw the positive effects that all of that had. Right. It raised a lot of people out of poverty. People were able to pay off bills. People were able to spend more. You would think that that would be good. Right. And that you might consider uh, the, the, the benefits of uh, direct payments to people in other times of crisis. But instead, you know, looking at this uh, food uh, insecurity that is spreading in the United States, uh, you know, you're going to have the USDA spending two billion to fund the emergency food system. So, I mean, it's great that you were going to have stocked shelves on food pantries, but that's not getting any spending really into the economy. You know what I mean? Like why we, we it illustrates to me that the block here is philosophical rather than based on the the effects of these actions right because you can say when you get when you just give people money 
right, which you could do in the form of those checks that we got from uh, the Trump administration, which you could do in the form of, you know, uh, creating legislation about uh, minimum wages and whatever. That has a whole lot of positive effects. I didn't see much about very many negative effects, and yet we still won't do it. And that, I think that's really well, sad. Well, the whole the whole problem in today's upside down economy is that when you give people money, uh, it seems to fuel inflation, which means that the people have less money than, than they began with. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the New York Times uh, a month ago or three weeks, three weeks ago had an article reporting that rents in New York City have risen thirty three percent year on year. I mean, people are facing homelessness. And 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 that's that's not due to stingy government, simply you know simply speaking, it's due to it's due to these misbegotten Federal Reserve poverty uh, policies, which have kept interest rates artificially low, have therefore driven up asset values from stocks to real estate, which is driving up rents. So what does an average working person do faced with a 33% annual rent increase? They literally, well, well, I'll tell you what they do. Yeah. They, they slice, they, they, if, if they, in order to avoid being thrown into the street, they slice everything else to, uh, to the bone. I mean, I mean, they, they, they slash their food expenditures, they slash their alcohol expenditures, uh, entertainment, uh, um, uh, Clothing, et cetera, et cetera. You know, uh, so it's 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 causing real hardship. I mean, I, I see this among you know um, uh, among people I know here in the city. You know, people doubling, tripling, quadrupling up in in apartments. Young people. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's causing real pain, and yet these policies are 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 the the increases are actually accelerating. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, it is very upsetting to watch. (laughs) Um, Let's talk about something that maybe we can inject a little bit of good news into this conversation. Um, On Friday, the Harvard Crimson, which is Harvard's student newspaper, came out in support of the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement to, of course, pressure Israel into complying with international law in its treatment of Palestinians. That includes ending the military occupation of Palestinian territories, allowing Palestinians the right to return to lands they've been evicted from since 1948, giving Palestinian citizens of Israel full rights, et cetera, et cetera. There are many other specific um, demands there. On the other hand, we learned today, belatedly, that Berlin had temporarily banned pro-Palestinian protests in the end of April. So they will be allowed after today, May 2nd, but they were temporarily blocked after demonstrations on April 22nd and 23rd, in which apparently some protesters made racist or anti-Semitic statements. Um, and there are contrasting views on what actually happened. Berlin authorities said, you know, there were criminal acts anti-Semitic slogans, exclamations of the worst kind. It's unacceptable. Organizers said they had created a festival that was really happy and positive, and one stupid racist statement from a 15-year-old boy has been used to discredit the whole thing. Probably a truth is somewhere in the middle there. Um, but I wonder what you make of these two the, these two headlines. How significant is it to have a, you know, the, the Harvard Crimson come out in support of BDS? Uh, how uncomfortable should we be with Berlin authorities deciding they're going to specifically ban this type of political gathering? 
Well, first of all, I mean, the, the, the German ban is is terrible. It's uh, it's absolutely atrocious. It's unsupportable. Um, uh, Germany has had a huge problem with Israel for 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 historical reasons right. that everybody knows. Right. Um, and so and so so Germany is probably the country, the one country on on earth which is most reluctant to engage in and to criticize Israel, even when criticism is grossly warranted. So, uh, so, 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 uh, you know, Germany, I mean, I was, I was in Germany, I was in Berlin a few years ago. I, I, I went to the Jewish museum. They had a, they had a wonderful exhibit, uh, called welcome to Jerusalem about the, uh, the second Intifada when the, uh, when, when bomb, when buses were being blown up and, 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 uh, also touching on questions of Palestinians, Palestinians who were, uh, deprived of their homes. It was a, that fascinating exhibit. It was a model of even-handedness. It was amazing. Yet the Israeli government forced them to close it down mm-hmm. okay. because 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 the Israeli government does not want even-handedness. It does not want fairness. Yeah. It does not want a non a non-racist approach to the problem. It wants an it wants an unfair anti-Palestinian approach to the, the problem. You know. Period. End of discussion. That's it. Um, so, and if you and if you don't agree, you're an anti-Semite. Mm-hmm. So you know. So so either either you're 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 either you're an anti-Palestinian racist or you're an anti-Semite. That's mm-hmm. the way the Israeli government sees it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but BDS is a different question. Uh, BDS. There's there's no public support for BDS at all in the U.S. That is sim- the simple truth. It doesn't matter what the Harvard Crimson does. You can poll. You can poll a thousand Americans, and if two of them support BDS, I'll be surprised. Um, now, and 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 BDS. I, I have argued against this. I've written about this. BDS is an atrocious policy, which simply is not going to accomplish anything. Is going to to end up doing the Palestinians more harm than good, uh, it com- it offers a completely misleading view of the reality in the Middle East. I mean, Israel is a terrible country. Its treatment of the Palestinians is unconscionable. It has somehow, you know, it has somehow twisted the ideology of anti anti Semitism into a kind of a racist ideology. I mean, all the worst governments in the world from 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 a from Orban's Hungary, you know, to uh, to Zelensky's Ukraine, to to Putin's Russia, all of them look upon look upon uh, Israel as a model to be emulated because they all want to strive for that same blend of of militant ethno nationalism that Israel stands for. But that said. Israel is not exceptional. I mean, I don't never understood why Israel is any worse than Saudi Arabia, whose policies towards its own Shiite minority are precisely the same as Israel's policies towards its Palestinian. Actually, at this point, a majority, um, but just as bigoted, just as murderous, just as cruel, just as sadistic. Uh, I mean, the same goes for the, the, the entire Middle East, where, 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 where um, uh, minorities are treated atrociously, absolutely atrociously. 
So singling out Israel in this special way strikes me as completely unwarranted and really takes the heat off the other countries. Now, your listeners are going to call me a, a, a crypto Zionist, <laughs> an, an, ap- an apologist for Israel. Uh, you know, I've, I can already hear it coming, but, uh, but <laughs> that is the truth. That is the real truth. And, uh, and, uh, and the, the fact that, B, that the BDS board has Hamas on it, for example, well, while we're on this topic, it's not, I mean, it's not a good sign. Do you want to talk for just a second? We, we don't want to keep you for too much longer, Dan, but do you want to just talk for a minute about the uproar that uh, Sergei Lavrov has apparently caused uh, when he was asked? I don't know if you heard the stand, so I'll explain yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you saw he was he was asked, you know, hey, how can you talk about denazifying Ukraine when Ukraine has a Jewish president? And he basically said the the. The the one has nothing to do with the other, uh, said, I, but isn't it true that Hitler's family, you know, that, that Hitler, uh, Hitler's family was Jewish, right? He had Jewish ancestors. And also, you know, Jews themselves will tell you some of the most virulent uh, anti-Semites are also Jewish. And so there was uproar over that. Um, you know, you, you have the foreign minister of, uh, of Israel, I believe it's the foreign minister of Israel, and also, of course, the prime minister of Israel coming out and saying, how dare you? How dare you suggest that Jews murdered themselves during the Holocaust, which I think is pretty much a, a stretch. But also, you know, saying here's a uh, year Lapid saying the lowest level of racism against Jews is to accuse Jews themselves of, of anti-Semitism. Look, man. Ariel Gold gets accused of anti-Semitism all day long because she is an anti-Zionist. Ditto Max Blumenthal. Ditto uh, Norman Finkelstein. So it's it's. I, I wonder what you make of these these remarks because I, I, you know, I didn't see that much to get upset about. Well, well, first of all, I, I, I think on, on one point Lavrov is, is wrong. I don't believe that Hitler had any had any Jewish blood in his family. That's an old canard. I, I don't. I think it's untrue. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. But as to the the rest, yes, of course he's correct. I mean, first of all, uh, first of all, I mean, the state of Israel is a uh, is itself is a so, so an Israeli critic called Israel the most anti-Semitic country on earth. And what he meant is that Israel has the practice of bringing guys like Orban from from uh, from Hungary, who is an anti-Semite. They 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 fly him into Jerusalem. They give him a tour a tour of Vad Yashem, the Holocaust Museum, and then and then uh and then the Israeli Prime Minister sprinkles some holy water on him and absolves him of anti-Semitism, and then he goes and he's free to go back to Hungary and behave as atrociously as he wishes. There were there were demonstrators at Vad Yashem when when Orban was brought there for a visit protesting this atrocious hypocrisy. And and yes, Israel does Israel is very free with the anti-Semitism label. And ironically, ironically, you know, it seems that, that a majority of those who are hit with those charges are themselves Jewish. And in in Britain, you know, half the people who were purged from the Labour Party for phony anti-Semitic statements were Jewish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Incredible. I mean, it's just. And, I, I will and, say, and, and, I, I think the, the like the the whole like goal of quote, quote unquote denazifying Ukraine. I think that sounds like a, inevitably would be a, a horrible, brutal policy, and not one I agree with. Right? I think that you know the idea well, that Ukrainian I'm society. In favor of, 
I'm in favor of denazifying the Ukraine. I think it's a great idea. I'm not sure, sure but we know. they want to do it, but, but, it's, but they have certainly have a problem there. Yeah. How are you going to do it? I mean, well, we're, we're watching. We're watching that attempt in, in, right now. But like, again, the idea that, uh, you know, electing Barack Obama did not mean that racism didn't exist in the United States anymore either. And so, again, it's a, sort of a. It, it, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. My God, how can you call American America racist when we have Barack Obama in the White House? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes no sense. Um, but, the, uh, you know, uh, how can you call Britain sexist when you had Margaret Thatcher as prime exactly. minister? Exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and, and actually, you know, the, the funny thing is, is that, is that U.S. polls show that American Jews are more critical of Israel than Americans in general. Mm-hmm. Now, I think. Yeah. I think I, I think that's great. I think that is an American, an incredible testament to American Jews yes. who are, you know, who are so, who are so stringent in their criticism they, that they, they, they refuse as a matter of principle not to give Israel a break. But for the, but for the Israeli government, that's a sign that American Jews are anti-Semitic. You know? Yeah, <laughs> it just makes no sense at all. No. All right. I think we probably put our hands on enough third rails for today with you, Dan. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. That was journalist and author Dan Lazar. We're going to take a quick break here and uh, talk about some more uh, guaranteed to have some more topics to make everyone uncomfortable here on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Representative Adam Kinzinger, the anti-Trump Republican from Illinois, has introduced an authorization to use force resolution in the U.S. House of Representatives that, if it passes both the House and the Senate, would allow President Biden to send U.S. combat troops to Ukraine in the event that Russia uses chemical, biological, or nuclear weapons against its neighbor. Kinziger told Face the Nation yesterday that he was not calling for immediate action against Russia. He's simply giving President Biden the leverage that he needs to act against Russia if it becomes necessary. And tomorrow is May 3rd. That means it's primary election day in Ohio and Indiana. There's not much going on in Indiana, but Ohio has that fascinating and whisker close Senate race that we've been telling you about. We're joined by Daniel McAdams. He's executive director of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Daniel served as the Foreign Affairs, Civil Liberties, and Defense and Intelligence Policy Advisor to U.S. Congressman Ron Paul, M.D., Republican of Texas, from 2001 until Dr. Paul's retirement at the end of 2012. Welcome back, Dan. Hello, Michelle. Hello, John. How are you? It's a pleasure, Dan. I'm so glad you're back. Thanks. Dan, I couldn't help but notice that this authorization for the use of force was sponsored by a junior member of the minority party and not by the chairman of the Armed Services Committee, the majority leader, the Speaker of the House. What should we take from that? Well, I think what we would be tempted to take from that is that this is a backbencher who is putting up some irrelevant piece of legislation uh, that won't get much attention. But, John, I know you spent some time on the Hill. I've spent enough time on the Hill to understand that it's actually far more 
significant than that. I think the purpose of this piece of legislation is to move the debate further toward war, to move it further down the road. We remember back in 1998 when you had the Iraqi Freedom Act, and uh, there was a lot of pressure on Dr. Paul to support that. Yes. Hey, you don't support freedom? What's wrong with you? Are you sick? <laughs> uh, and it was uh, his re- response was, this could lead to war. And there's even a great speech with him on the floor of the House saying, this could lead to war. Are you crazy? They said the same kinds of things. Just give the president some tools. And so that's what we're seeing. This, that this is the attempt to widen the debate, to bring into the basket of ideas the idea that the United States is going to start a nuclear war with Russia. In fact, I would rename it the Authorizations for False Flag Resolution because that's yeah. essentially what it is. Yeah. Um, I think you're exactly right. Uh, first off, you know, in the event that there was some catastrophe, uh, the use, for example, of a nuclear weapon, uh, Congress would be free to act then. I mean, it, when Congress really needs to act quickly, it can. It generally doesn't, but it can. And so so sponsoring this resolution now just in case at some point down the road, the president needs to attack Russia is what it comes down to. It's like a pre-authorization. And I agree with you. I think that that there's a that there are several messages to be to be taken from this. Number one, um, it's an attempt to draw the Republicans in. I think that the Democrats probably approached Kinzinger because we know Kinzinger is on the January 6th committee. He's an outcast within the Republican Party for the most part. He's one of those traditional neoconservatives, fits in very nicely with the the neoliberals in the Democratic Party. So I think this was an opportunity for a Republican to sponsor a resolution that the Democrats like um, in order to call it bipartisan. And I think that when the Democrats say that it's just to give the president a tool, well, by God, we ought to take their word for it. It's just that the tool is so dangerous, we shouldn't want the president to have this tool. You know? <laughs> What's funny is what, uh, what Dr. Paul said on our show this morning. He said, on the one hand, the Republicans have spent the last year telling us that the president has a serious case of dementia. He doesn't seem to be in his right mind. And on the same time, they're going to say, let's give him sole authorization to oh, conduct a nuclear oh, war with Russia. Good that makes point. A lot of sense. Good point. <laughs> um, Dan, in um, 1991, and I remember this very, very clearly, uh, when Congress voted on its use of force in the Gulf War, um, the the votes happened within two days of each other, three days of each other, something like that. When there was another authorization for the use of force in 2001, it happened very quickly, right after September 11th. Again, in 2002, there was an authorization for the use of force in the Iraq war. And um, these votes were taken when it was crunch time, when it was clear that there was this national will to go to war and to right the wrongs of blah, blah, blah. And we're, we're not in a position like that right now. We're not anywhere yep. near a position like that right now. And a clear majority of the American people have zero interest in going to war with Russia. So do you see this thing having any life on the Senate side? Well, of course, we don't even know if it's going to work its way through the process in the House, but we haven't heard anything yet about the Senate side. Have you? 
Well, I haven't. But again, I think the purpose of this is to bring this topic into the debate. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a kind of a pro forma exercise in passing legislation. It's to get people talking about it. And you're absolutely right. If you sat down with an American citizen who is of reasonable intelligence and explain the situation and ask if they thought it was worth going to nuclear war over the borders of Ukraine, they would say no. But as with everything else, as, as you say, as if with the post-9-11 hysteria enabled them to pass the Patriot Act, enabled them to go to war with Iraq, which had zero involvement whatsoever, once you get the frenzy going, unfortunately, I mean, you had people um, changing their avatars from Fauci to Ukraine, right, in the space of right. a week. So uh, people are unfortunately guided by emotions. The American people are guided by emotions. And let's not forget, um, uh, as much as Radio Sputnik is a great, great radio station, you and I are on Sputnik. I'm, I've been on RT because no one in the mainstream media would allow mm-hmm. debate Absolutely at all, right. At all. And that's so they most people don't listen, unfortunately, to Radio Sputnik. They get their uh, news and views from the mainstream media. So what they get and what they consume are very, very, very small and very, very carefully crafted, crafted to elicit a particular response. And that's the problem we have. Dan, we had uh, Joe Loria from Consortium News on the show uh, earlier. Uh, I guess it was at the end of the last hour. And um, he was talking about how PayPal has has seized Consortium News's uh, funds and suspended uh, its account. They've essentially crippled Consortium News today. They did the same thing several days ago to Mint Press News, to Caleb Maupin, a journalist formerly of RT America. Uh, and this is, a, this is a pattern that we're seeing where voices outside the political mainstream, especially on the issue of Ukraine, are being silenced. Are you and Dr. Paul under any such pressure? Are, are, are there any outside forces, be they governmental or, or private slash financial, that are trying to silence you? You know, we used to worry about, you know, starting a small think tank. Our fears were trying to connect with our audience, trying right. to resonate the message, trying to raise a little bit of money to keep the roofs over our head. And those were things that we could all, we could all have control over. We could work harder. We could work over weekends. Um, which I've done for eight years, right? <laughs> we can do all of these things. And then all of a sudden comes along an extraordinarily arbitrary um, set of rules that weren't part of the, weren't part of the process early on, uh, whereby you can simply be disappeared for no good concrete reason. Um, I'm familiar, I'm very familiar with Mint Press and with Consortium. I, Joe's a friend, uh, as was his predecessor, Bob Perry, Bob one of the Perry. greatest journalists that we've had. Yeah. And um, it's shocking uh, and this is the problem with – and this is why your show is so great. This is the problem with everything being bifurcated between the left and right. Those two websites I would call left-leaning if I had to say – if I had to use a term. But the Republicans have this this mantra where only the right wing is being canceled and being kicked out. It is not true. It's any dissenting voices, and you said it exactly right. So um, the answer is yes, I worry all the time. And it does cause you to to engage in some kind of at least psychological self-censorship. Yeah. Right. And this is right. You know, in late communism, it was the, the, you didn't have to have the secret police in the streets like you may have had to have in the 20s um, because people already knew that they shouldn't touch these issues. They can't talk about these issues. Uh, and it's it's pretty sad and pretty chilling to see that we are not only are we going down that path, but we see ostensibly private companies doing the bidding of the state to prevent inconvenient voices from being heard. 
Yes. Yes, indeed. Hey, let's uh, let's turn to politics uh, for a little bit. Um, I, I'd love to get your your opinion on this contentious U.S. Senate primary in Ohio. Um, not not necessarily the blow by blow of the candidates, Dan, so much as what their different campaigns mean for the Republican Party, not just in Ohio, but but nationwide. You've you've got a group of of people who all identify as conservatives, but they're all different kinds of conservatives. It's actually unclear now who the front runner is. You've got you've got former President Trump endorsing the author of Hillbilly Elegy. That's J.D. Vance. And for a while, well, briefly anyway, he seemed to be polling first. You've got Ohio State Treasurer Josh Mandel, who has run for the Senate several times. He and um, and uh, uh, Matt Dolan got into a fist fight at one of the Republican uh, debates. Matt Dolan being the state senator and part owner of the Cleveland Guardians baseball team. You have Gene Timken, who's a former Ohio Republican Party leader. Uh, Matt Dolan now is surging after spending $10 million of his own money on the race. Um, the, the lesson here, I think, I think, is that Republicans can have a political future without Donald Trump. But we'll know more about that day after tomorrow. I, I'm wondering what your thoughts are. When, when somebody is running for major office, for the Senate, for governor, even for Congress, uh, or for the House, really. Uh, does it matter what their position on Donald Trump is? Does it matter who gets the, the Trump uh, endorsement? Especially in a place like Ohio, that's, that's actually a pretty conservative state. But like I say, there are different kinds of conservatism. I, I think the Trump imprimatur does help to a degree, particularly in a state like Ohio, and uh, you know, Trump did very well in Ohio and in other uh, dust, uh, Rust Belt states. Yep. Um, it, I don't think it carries the power that it once carried for a number of reasons. Um, I think a lot of Trump's base has moved on to other things. I think they moved on to someone like DeSantis, yep. um, who's kind of a younger version of Trump um, without a lot of the baggage. Um, but nevertheless, I don't think it hurt him. Uh, that uh, I don't think it hurt Vance that Trump endorsed him. And Trump even brought out, you said a lot of bad SH blank blank about me, but I still endorsed you. <laughs> he did um, say that, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I, you know, I, 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 I look at Vance, I, I look at him on Twitter, and there's, there's a lot to like and there's a lot to dislike. Um, first of all, he's absolutely hated by Bill Crystal. So, oh, well, that's a good thing. Me, yeah, for me, that's a good thing. <laughs> um, from my perspective, and, 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 and you guys know, I'm not only am I not a Republican voter, I'm not a voter. So I don't really have a horse in the right, race. But right. I think to a degree, Vance might be a kind of, I hate to say it, kind of future of the Republican Party that I know, John, you and I have talked about before. He's come, He comes out big on blue collar. He comes up big on manufacturing. Yeah, he does. Um, and uh, I think there's a huge, huge territory there for him, for, for people like, for young candidates like him who are conservative to embrace working people and um, try to erase the perception, uh, you know, in uh, among potential Republican voters that it's a party of the of the rich, um, which of course it is. But whatever the case, I think he has a lot. He brings a lot to the table when he talks about bringing jobs back. Of course, on 
well, more on the positive side. He's, he got in huge trouble because he said, you know what? I don't really care what happens in Ukraine. And that, you want to talk about third rails. That was a third rail. Uh, it's a populist right kind of statement. Yeah. Um, and his opponents, I know certainly Mandel, and I think the others support a no-fly zone. So he's able to oh, distinguish boy. himself. From the other from the other candidates there, but on the downside, and we can go into it, I guess he's very hawkish on China. So the idea is we're going to bring jobs back to the U.S. by beating the crap out of the Chinese, which I don't think is a winning strategy. Yeah. And he's also really, really bad on the Iran deal, which I think was a great deal, one of the very few achievements of the uh, foreign policy achievements yep. of the Obama administration. Well, yep. That Agreed. and opening ties to Cuba were his two best foreign policy successes. Couldn't agree more. Uh, in, in these last uh, couple of minutes, I, I want to ask you about uh, about a house race. We, we talk a lot on the show. Well, I talk a lot about the show uh, on the show anyway, about Representative Madison Cawthorn. Um, the, this North Carolina Republican is running against uh, State Senator uh, Chuck Edwards. Edwards, of course, is the, the interloper now. The latest polls show Cawthorn leading 38 to 21, which is remarkably poor for an incumbent. That's far worse than the 49-14 that he was leading a month ago. And when an incumbent is polling at less than 50%, he has problems. There was a poll released by Newsweek today showing his disapproval rating is now 51%. Um, Michelle and I have talked amongst ourselves. We've come to the conclusion that the Republican leadership in the House wants Cawthorn to lose. The guy is just not worth the trouble talking about coke fueled orgies and just every time he opens his mouth, he makes a fool of himself and he doesn't take direction from his leadership. Is that how things work um, in in the parties in in the House of Representatives that you get a you get a get out of jail free card that you can use once or twice. But after you've used it a couple of times, maybe it is time for you to go. I thought you were going to ask me if the Coke, the Coke orgies were the, <laughs> that I, tell you, I, I, I worked on both the House side and the Senate side, and I was never invited to any Coke fuel orgies. <laughs> now, I did see on Fridays, a lot of the uh, offices were rolling in a lot of uh, large uh, cartons of beer. Yeah. So and, I, I don't. And every once that. in a while, somebody would pull out a joint on Friday afternoons. And that was it. <laughs> well, we didn't have that. But, <laughs> did, yeah, I mean, but yeah, I think, you know, he first, you know, it's hard for me to know what happened, but he started talking about this sex stuff. And I know there's a lot of this. And I know, I mean, frankly, and I wouldn't say any names or point any fingers, but there are a lot of elderly, older men who get a lot of power. And there's a lot of young ladies and, you know, the opposite, I'm sure is true as well. Um, but you know, there is a lot of this, uh, power corrupting sort of thing. And there is a lot of, you know, young, attractive gals. So uh, there may be some truth to what he's saying. However, he, <laughs> you're right. He went way out, way out, uh, uh, on, on a, on a rail on that. And now there are some pictures that have, that have surfaced about him. Yeah. And yes, they were many years ago. One of them with this, I think chief of staff was not that long ago. And you basically, you know, <laughs> He sowed the wind and now he's reaping the whirlwind. Um, you know, I think it's it's a dangerous territory. But when you start getting into the sex stuff, I think, to be honest, it's very dangerous because people start to cringe. And I think he, I think you're, you're right. I mean, your numbers there are not good. I think he may be in trouble. 
I think so, too. Well, we'll leave it there. That was the voice of Daniel McAdams. Dan's the executive director of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. He served as the Foreign Affairs, Civil Liberties, and Defense and Intelligence Policy Advisor to Dr. Ron Paul from 2001 until Dr. Paul's retirement at the end of 2012. Thanks for joining us, Dan. You're listening to Political Misfits. Hey. Oh. We'll just keep going, I yeah, think. Yeah, we've, we've, we've only got five minutes left. Oh, you're left. right. We only have five Jam minutes. Jam it See, up. We've got too many things to remember. Time flies when you're having fun. It's true. Um, I wanted to make sure we mentioned that there is a vote underway, uh, a union vote underway at Amazon's, yes. a second Amazon warehouse on Staten Island. Uh, this morning I saw they were expecting the results at uh, this evening. Then I saw something about 1 wow. p.m., but I don't see any results. Wow. So we, so we okay. will see. Yeah, I mean that'll be that'll be interesting. The the Amazon Labor Union is of course already saying, look, no matter what the no matter what the result is, uh we've already won a historic victory. Absolutely. And you know, the fact that it's the, the fact that we've even been able to bring this to a vote uh, came really against very long odds. The other thing that was interesting to note this morning on this topic is that Amazon is going to get a hearing that could possibly overturn that first vote. I, I mean, this is definitely, you know, this is not not guaranteed or anything, but they've they've objected to a union election at that that first Staten Island warehouse. Um, and so they're going to get a hearing on it. Uh, this is what Chris Smalls warned was going to happen. Too. Yes. He he said that uh, that Amazon was going to go. I think it was to the NLRB. Is mm-hmm. that right? Yes. National Labor Relations Board. And they had a couple of objections, but he said that that he was confident that the yeah. workers would come They've out. They've gone ahead. to the NLRB and basically said Amazon was intimidating workers into voting, or That's not right. Amazon, the, the labor union was intimidating yeah, voters, ridiculous. And, uh, workers into voting for the union. Yeah, it seems silly. So we'll see. So of With course the big headline their power, is- power, they were into intimidating Exactly, the by like standing out at the bus stop and, ha- you know, having cookouts and talking to people right. about what unions could do. Yeah, yeah, so again, the big headline is could overturn uh, the election results, whether that's likely to happen or not is a different question. The other thing that I think is just weird and interesting is uh, the Lone Star. Yeah. You know, the Lone Star tick. I thought this was a joke when I first read it. No, that it makes you allergic to red meat? Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. It's so specific. Yeah. This is a tick bite. Yeah. That makes you allergic to red meat. Yeah. Crazy. Possibly for the rest of your life. Yeah. And they're in D.C. So that's why this is in the yeah, Washington Post. Yeah, they've made Post. it to D.C. Lone Star tick. It's got a white spot on its back. And if it bites you, if it is female, it could make you not want to eat red meat for the rest of your life. And not just not want to. I mean, it makes you allergic to red meat. Right. Let's see. Uh, if red meat is eaten by people bitten by a lone star tick, the immune system recognizes the al- alpha gal. Sounds like you're talking about me, but I guess you're talking about some kind of substance in the meat. The alpha gal from the meat as a foreign substance and the body mounts a response often much more severe than the initial response to the tick bite. So, I mean, you could get a rash, you could itch, you could perhaps throw up or you might suffer anaphylactic shock. Amazing. If you eat red meat, not a problem for me because I haven't eaten in a long time, but still. Wow. Yeah. Wild, huh? Yeah. You know, I have this irrational fear of things that drink my blood. Like I freak out around. I don't think, you know what? Some fears are rational. <laughs> some, some fears are rational. I mean, the things that only drink a small amount of your blood. Okay, but go on, John. But like mosquitoes and stuff. I just hate them. I hate the idea. And I hate the idea of ticks because they burrow their heads under your skin to drink your blood. 
And, and they I know leave that, their little heads in there. And they leave their heads. You break the body off and the head you're grows just, a new body. You're riddled with tick heads right now, John. Oh They're my floating God. around I to, your bloodstream. I had to do this CIA training program out in the sticks one time. And I'm not a guy for the woods, right? At least not for more than a few hours. And I got home and there's a tick like totally burrowed into my shin. And I freaked out like a crazy person. I broke it off and then... You know, knowing that they grow new bodies and continue to drink your blood, I had to pick it out with a with a pin, and did it was grow just new it was bodies? just. I'm not sure. I'm gonna need a yeah, yeah, they on do. That. What you have? That's why you have to get the head out because okay. it'll actually grow a new body. Ew, I uh, disgusting. I had my first experience of uh, leeches as an adult. Oh, I yeah, went to yeah. I went to Thailand. Oh, we used to get them when I've, I was I've a read kid. about them. You know, you read Little House on the sure. Prairie, or whatever. Swimming but I've in never the local seen pond. Oh, boy, man. Oh, the yeah. Site, I remember sitting down. I mean, I had discovered leeches on my, it was like, oh, neat, novel, whatever. They don't hurt. I'm no. not. I'm no, you not, can't even feel them. I'm not a scaredy cat like you about them. But <laughs> sitting down on a stump in the middle of the jungle and realizing, like you look around with the foliage and stuff on the ground, your eyes play tricks on you. And then you realize, no, no, I can actually see a leech with no eyes, just drawn to the smell of my blood crawling toward me across oh. the jungle floor. Oh, and then God. you realize, man. <laughs> Everything here just wants to eat you so bad. If you stop moving for a second, it's just like Thanksgiving in the jungle. Oh, all right, that's all we have time God. for. We'll get into more disgusting stories of blood sucking tomorrow. <laughs> Probably. You'll have to listen and see. Uh, thanks to our engineers and producers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and me, Michelle Witte, thank you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.